From CPR News, a special Colorado Matters today. It was just after Thanksgiving last year, and Brian Raymond was at work doing road maintenance. And I just didn't feel right. You know, my throat was kind of sore, and I didn't think, you know, I thought maybe I was getting a cold or something. Soon, he was in the hospital, his lungs failing. Raymond would become the first recipient of a COVID-related lung transplant in Colorado. The father of four has had to learn to breathe again. I actually jogged for five minutes. It was the first time I've actually jogged since before I was positive for COVID. Brian Raymond on the people who've saved and changed his life. His spouse, the surgeon, the organ donor, and the custodian who came into his hospital room to sing. Plus, why he doesn't care to know who gave him the virus and the permanent changes he must make to keep his new lungs healthy. Businesses are opening up. The state is opening up. And so is the art scene. Movie theaters, museum exhibits, music festivals, performers taking to stages across the state. After a year stuck at home, you might want a night or weekend out. I'm Colorado Public Radio's arts and culture reporter, Monica Castillo. Stay up to date on the rejuvenated art scene. Listen to CPR News or come to CPR.org. Get ready for an entertaining summer. A special Colorado Matters today from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When Brian Raymond met up with his surgeon the other day, it marked a turning point. Raymond had gotten a double lung transplant March 6th after contracting COVID-19. And he was at the University of Colorado Hospital in Aurora for one last procedure before he and his family headed home to Montana. You saved my life. I mean, not only you, but your whole team. And I can't thank you enough for that. His transplant surgeon, Dr. Rob McGee, had walked in for a quick check on his patient. As the men chatted, they occasionally grasped each other's hands. And not only is it you, but it's also the donor. You know, we don't know the donor's family. We one day hope that we get to meet them. And, you know, they had to go through something terrible for me to live. But, yeah, for me and my family, we can't thank you enough for what you did for us. I appreciate that so much, Brian. I appreciate that. But I'm only one of several hundred people who've taken care of you in this massive journey. I just happened to be the person on call the night you needed a lung transplant. Dr. McGee tells us that Raymond's case should serve as a warning to people who dismiss how serious COVID-19 can be. I have a patient who's a very healthy young man with a family, and he had to have a lung transplant due to COVID. So it shouldn't be poo-pooed, taken lightly, and people should get vaccinated. Just about this time last year, Brian Raymond was in public works, hefting big tires without a second thought. I was working for the county, running road maintaining equipment, um, blades, loaders, excavators, hauling gravel. In his spare time, he refereed youth sports. He's also a father, helping his wife Trinity, a teacher, raise their four kids, ages 3 to 15. Ryder. River. Reagan. And Renzi. But when he caught COVID, he crashed fast and hard. And after months and months of medical interventions, it became clear his own lungs were failing. Again, the surgeon. If he hadn't had a lung transplantation, he probably would not have survived significantly longer. 
A conversation with Dr. McGee tomorrow. He expects he'll be doing more COVID-19 related transplants, by the way. Today, we hear from Brian and Trinity Raymond. We spoke at a home where they were staying temporarily near the Anschutz Medical Campus. Home home for them is the small town of Malta, Montana, near the Canadian border, where they met as teenagers. We have one chain restaurant, that's the Dairy Queen. Um, we do have a front street, has a couple businesses on it, a couple restaurants. Um, you Stoplight? There is one blinking yellow light at the <laughs> underpass. That's it, yeah. No, no full-time but no stoplights. No full-time red lights. Nope. That's a reason to move to a place <laughs> right. or move back to a place. So the pandemic begins. We're getting news about China. We're getting news about Europe. We hear it's coming to the West Coast of the United States. New York gets hit hard. Early on, what's your level of concern about this virus for yourselves? We did take precautions. You know, we, we kind of limited ourselves and where we went. And actually, Phillips County, where we live, was one of the last three or four in the state of Montana to actually have their first case. One of us would go to the grocery store and we would mask up when we did go. Or, I mean, we would go out to her parents' house, but that's about the only places we would go, you know, just to be safe because I still am immunocompromised because I have MS. So you didn't take this lightly by any means, it sounds like, Trinity? I, I wouldn't say we took it lightly, but I don't think that we also, I'm sure we could have done better. And we knew that Brian was immunocompromised, so we knew we had to be careful. But I mean, starting in August, I, I'm back in school full session, you know, obviously he's been working the whole time. You know, there was still all that type of stuff. It wasn't like everything completely shut down for us. Um, like, I don't think we ever would have imagined it being this bad for us. So you were still going to work, Brian, mm -hmm. but that's mostly, do I gather mostly outdoors or alone in a vehicle or do you, you share a cab or what? Um, it just depends on what we were doing. I mean, sometimes it could be two of us in a cab. I mean, we were all in the shop at one time, but they still, the people there still took it pretty serious when we did start getting our first cases in Phillips County, um, our commissioners did say, you know, one person per vehicle. Mm. I mean, mm -hmm. so they started making precautions there. Because you work for the county mm -hmm. yep. in Montana there. And there were, there were lots of precautions that we had in place to, you know, even in my job too, just to make sure that we could stay in school for our kids. And um, to this day, we have no idea where Brian got COVID. Is that frustrating? I don't think it is because I wouldn't want the person maybe that he contracted it from to ever know anyways. That would be something horrible for them to feel, I'm sure. It strikes me as a sign of your kindness and your character mm -hmm. that you wouldn't want mm -hmm. the person who transmitted it to know. No way. Huh. Mm -mm. I wouldn't want that person to know even if they did give me the COVID virus just because... It's kind of like when somebody's in a car wreck and they injure a person or they kill a person, you know, they have to live with that the rest of their life. Knowing that if they did give me the COVID virus and I got as sick as I did, and, you know, there was times that I should have died. 
And I think it's important to remember that none of it is intentional. Like, I don't feel like there are people, at least in our community, there are not people intentionally trying to spread COVID. When did you first know you were sick, Brian? Um, November 30th. We, um, we were working by ourselves. We were hauling gravel that day. And I just didn't feel right. You know, my throat was kind of sore. And I didn't think, you know, I thought maybe I was getting a cold or something. Well, we hadn't gotten back to the shop that night. And I was just kind of sitting there. And I could feel myself getting a fever. I was just getting so hot. And I went home that night and I still felt hot. And then I started shivering and I got the chills and it was... And you went in and got tested that day on the 30th. Yeah. yeah so I came back positive. On the 1st. December we found 1st. out that he was positive. So they started me on steroids and nebulizer treatments and, you know, they tried to throw everything at me that they could. Were you scared? Um, not really. I mean, because I was fairly healthy. You know, I officiated high school and college basketball before I got sick. So, you know, I was in fairly good shape. And Young guy? How old were you at that point? 37. 37, okay. Yep. And, you know, still doing stuff at the shop, you know, doing semi-tires and loader tires and, you know, whatever we needed to do. I mean, so I was in pretty good shape and, you know, things just weren't getting better. And I called to see if I could get some more you know, nebulizer treatments because I was running out. And the night of the December 9th, mm -hmm. I just got shortness of breath. I had a pulsometer and I kept checking it to see what my O2 sats were. And I was like, oh, I don't know if something's wrong or what, but I was in like, like 78. Oh my, my goodness. O2 level was. It was kind of weird though, because he was having like full on conversations. Like I know he could kind of feel like short of breath, but you never would have guessed. In fact, so my aunt's a nurse and she even thought like, no, surely his isn't that low. But then she put it on her finger and she was like, we're going now. In fact, she took him, she took him to the hospital and they called me from there in the ER. Obviously, I mean, she was able to go in cause she's a nurse there. I would not be able to go in and because in those early yep. days of covid yeah and um, just couldn't go in for exposure's sake right and so they immediately said we're flying him out and that was december 9th and they flew him that night to billings and even in billings you know the first week was okay he wasn't getting any better he was on bipap though which he hated he hated having that mask over with the high pressure a kind of breathing machine right yep. yeah okay. so it's basically it's more he needed more oxygen than just the nasal cannula because he was needing at this time a little bit of pressure too so that bipap can put some pressure in there also i see it's sort of sealed on you and i think at that time we're thinking okay malta's just small you know, they can't provide the higher level of oxygen that he needs. He just needs to go there to get better, essentially. You know, we knew it was serious, but I didn't really think it was that serious. Yeah. You know, when they got him there, they called me. They were going to do the plasma treatment, you know, getting him hooked up on BiPAP right away. There were specialists there, you know, pulmonologists are there. We just don't have that in Malta. So you're thinking um, there are all these tools. There's an right. arsenal waiting for you in Billings to beat this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, you know, he's on the BiPAP and then sometimes he's just on the high flow, kind of going back and forth. We're still able to talk over the video phone. call. Video call. Yep. Okay. So he could see the kids and everything. But then 
December 17th, it was about three o'clock in the morning when my phone rang and the nurse said, look, he's not doing well. They're coming to evaluate him to intubate him. She put me on speakerphone. So she's in his room talking and I can hear her kind of saying stuff to him. And I said, what is he saying? And she said, he's just telling me, no, no, he doesn't want that. And at that time, I remember thinking, like, I hope they don't give him a choice. Like, yes, that's what he's getting right now, you know. Um, and intubating means you were going to be put on a ventilator. Yeah, yep. He was going to be put on a ventilator. The whole hope was just to give his lungs completely the time to rest and to heal. And we were hoping that's all that we needed. But it was just a couple hours later that the doctor called me and he said, look, I think that your husband's a candidate for what we call ECMO. Had never really heard of it. Didn't really understand. You know, I'm trying to research, put him on speakerphone and look it up while I'm talking to him. Right? So there's ECMO. What does it stand for? Let's Google it. Here, let's Google it just like you did. ECMO. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Yes. Okay, so essentially there's there are two cannulas that are placed in him and one is taking the blood out of his body. It's putting it through a machine that has an oxygenator on it and it's going to provide oxygen for his blood while removing the carbon dioxide and then it's shipping his blood back into his body. Oh, it's like outside it's lungs. Outside lungs, yes. So he's on a ventilator, but yes. then they say you need this ECMO thing too? Yes, the ventilator wasn't enough. So the ventilator is providing the oxygen in, but his body can't remove the carbon dioxide either. What are your memories of that time? He's out by this time. I don't remember any of it. I mean, they had him sedated because he was already on the ventilator. Um, is a part of you grateful, Brian, not to remember those days? Yes. Oh, for sure, I would say. So were you able to talk? Okay. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> not not really able to like talk. So he would like type it out on his phone. Okay. Oh. So by this time, he's really only a couple weeks in. So although he only, is weak. Wait, wait. I just I want to point out that you said only a couple of weeks in. This has been such a saga. Yeah. That weeks in the hospital. Was nothing. Was nothing. Mm -mm. No, weeks is nothing. So Christmas, I FaceTimed him so he could watch the kids open their gifts um, I tried to keep things as normal as I could for the kids, but it was hard. It was, it was an ECMO Christmas. It was an ECMO virtual Christmas. In fact, the kids still are saying, we have your presents, Dad, when you get home, you know, because he still hasn't opened his presents. That was hard on the kids. But the week after Christmas, my son has some appointments. So I'm going down and the doctor said, you know what, we're going to meet with you and we're going to let you look in his room. So I was able to see him through the window, and we were texting back and forth. Are you still positive for COVID at that point? Yes. Oh, Brian is still so positive for COVID. He the amount of time that he tested positive is like astronomical. It's crazy. But they knew he probably wasn't contagious to us at that time. But they're saying um, this is a window visit. Right. This is a window visit. And then a couple days later, I was still down there and they said, we're going to let you come in because at that time, there's finally some response for some other hospitals. 
that maybe they can take him. This entire time, Billings doctors were trying everything to get him transported out because their level of care had been met. So they're trying to get him transported out because his lungs with the x-rays and everything aren't looking any better. But I imagine that the hospitals at that point, the intensive care units, I remember, are full. About like the very last week of December, I was down there and I was getting ready to head home and the doctor said, we're going to encourage you to stay. And so I knew it was bad. You know, he said, we think you should stay in Billings. What did you take that to mean? Just to be clear. Oh, mm, time was ending. I've, I really, I mean, I thought, okay, this is, I mean, they've done what they can. No place will take him. He just wasn't, he wasn't doing great. He still wasn't getting any better. And he would have those good days where he would be like up texting me and then the next day we're not doing great. You know, it was such a roller coaster of, oh, up and down and up and down. Right. Like this hour I have hope. The next hour you're in the doldrums. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Brian, do you remember the Christmas? A little bit. A little bit. What are you hoping is in those presents back home? (laughs) At this point, I don't really care. I'm just, I'm just excited to be home. Home is the present yes mm-hmm. i mean we've i've been away from home since well since december 9th yep so over six months when did the term transplant enter it, the discussion because it started i mean during the middle of december as they're trying to get him they said we think he needs to go to a bigger facility and they they said he may need to be evaluated for a lung transplant well, how did you react to that word? Like you're thinking, I have a 30-something I still thought uh, there's husband. no way possible. There is no way it's coming to that. Like, this is crazy. Most of the people that we know that have COVID lost their sense of taste and smell. That and was that the effect was, of COVID on yes. them. Yes. Yeah. And that's what you're comparing this to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Like, why is it this bad? So that first week of January... Um, the doctor calls me and he's like, I think Denver is willing to take him. And I actually got a call from Dr. Gray herself, who is the head doctor at the lung transplant here at UC Health. And she just wanted to talk to me. And she said, look, you don't have to take this spot, but we are offering it. You know, at that time, they already have people on ECMO for other health conditions, right? They have this lung transplant program for these people that already need these transplants. They had two spots in that hospital available for COVID people on ECMO, right? So if you don't take that spot, you don't know if you're going to get it. So you grabbed it. I did. I said, I think we, yeah, we'll take it. Um, So, but it started a couple days of fighting insurance and trying to get a flight because it's not just a typical flight from Billings to Denver. Because With he's on ECMO. on ECMO. Right. So they actually had to fly and pick up team members. Like they had to go pick up team members down in Oklahoma to get a, a full team that they needed to be able to fly him here. So by this time, this was a good day though. I mean, so that morning I'm there with Brian. I'm in. My parents brought our kids down to say goodbye to him and they let them in and do that. You know, January 7th, is the day that the team is supposed to come in and get him. And so they're going to come mid-afternoon. 
I'm with Brian that morning and, you know, we're communicating fairly well. He's feeling pretty good, but you can just see in his face, he keeps watching the clock and pretty soon we're having some blood pressure numbers and we're having some heart rate numbers. And he finally said, I think that you should sedate me now. I think, I think I need something. What was on your mind? Do you remember? I don't. A lot of it was, I felt like I was leaving my family. And the, so much the fear of the unknown. What am I going to do about work? Who's going to take care of my kids? How am I going to get there? You know, and, and they fly him down here. And of course, like UC Health has their own COVID protocols that they have to follow. And I completely understand that. So now they've got a COVID patient, right? He's going to the COVID wing. And that time that he's been in the hospital, even though by this time it's been a month, it doesn't matter. Their count has to start over with how many days he has to be in the hospital before they can let somebody in. Because again, he's testing positive still. So I go home and try to get things straightened out. There was an amazing couple that lived in Broomfield, family of family, that agreed to take me in. They were like, tell her she can come. Just so you could be near the hospital. Just so I could be here. You couldn't even go into the room, but at least nope. you could be near. I could be here. They gave me a car to use. I just want to say that you both are sitting next to each other with a phone in between, with a calendar app <laughs> up. And this is how you are tracking the dates as you tell this story. Yeah. Life it became. Together. Right. It all runs together. I mean, I think all of our senses of time mm -hmm. were knocked off. I think. For you, yeah, you didn't know which way was up. No, and I expected when I got phone calls, you know, that they had arrived in Denver and like what was going on, I expected him to be just the way he was in Billings, like before he asked for sedation, right? So he's, he's that much with it. Yes, he's on ECMO. Yes, he's on a ventilator, but he's saying like, I need some sedation. I'm getting nervous. We're communicating the entire time. On text. On text, yeah. But then or what? reading lips or something. But it wasn't like that when he got here. The story of Colorado's first COVID-19 lung transplant recipient continues in the next half hour as crews fly Brian Raymond from Billings, Montana to the University of Colorado Hospital in Aurora. Weeks have passed since Raymond caught COVID-19 and his wife Trinity is dumbfounded because he's still testing positive and he's just not getting better. I'm Ryan Warner with producer Michelle P. Fulcher. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Public Radio remains committed to taking you on daily explorations into the world of music and into the news of the day bringing you more backstories and perspectives with an expanded schedule. Your support ensures a strong foundation for the compelling coverage and storytelling that you will continue to rely on. A popular way to support? Start an evergreen membership and commit to giving a little each month. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. Give because the news and music matter at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A special show today, the story of the first patient in Colorado to receive a lung transplant because of COVID-19. 
Brian Raymond lives with his wife, Trinity, in tiny Malta, Montana, near the Canadian border. But he was transferred to Billings as his condition worsened. That hospital reached the limits of its care. So Cruz flew him on a heart-lung machine called ECMO to the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado. The possibility of a transplant looms as Brian goes in and out of sedation. Now, he'll have to be strong enough for transplantation. But upon arriving in Aurora, Trinity says... He was so much sicker. And every time they would try to wean the sedation, he would start coughing so bad he was messing with the ECMO or his blood pressure is going up. So they have to keep him sedated. They know by this time he's experiencing a lot of deconditioning and he needs to be healthy for transplant, like as healthy as he can be, right? So we need him up and walking, which was like, what? This is the tension is that he's so sick. You're so sick, Brian, you need a transplant. But you have to be strong and healthy enough to get a transplant. Right, or he's not gonna survive. It's like the perfect catch-22. Exactly. Well, and so the teams here, there were so many teams involved and, and they would FaceTime me so that, and at one point during physical therapy, they were working on trying to get him to hold his head up because at that time, I mean, he needs full support even to keep his head up. So even to hold his head up, they were having to do that. So they would call me and they would put it on video and hold it in front of him and up a little to try and get him to like hold his head up. In other words, respond. using the video chat as the therapy, yep, trying, trying to get him to follow the, He's fully supported image. just to sit up in bed. I mean, he literally can't do anything. And this was when they were finally able to bring him out of sedation. Well, they're, they're trying Yep, they're working on that, but he's still pretty... Out of it. Yeah, they, so what they would do is they would like cut off those medications like an hour before therapy was supposed to start. Like the sedating meds or the painkillers sometimes, you know, would be so sedating to him. And just trying to find that balance because we know that we've got to get him stronger or the transplant isn't an option. So you'd gone home to Montana for a bit. Just, you, uh, yep, for about a week. You come back to Denver and Brian finally tests negative for COVID. You're able to go into the room. What do you see? Hmm. I mean, I was used to all the machines and everything. I just saw him. Like, but he's sick. I don't want to say he looks horrible, but he looked horrible. <sighs> that was hard. And even the therapists and the doctors just said, um, we think we need you here. And I was like, you know, it's hard to see him, but I was like, nope, you're not staying like this. So would you say that you better to him? buckle up? He got so mad at me during that. That month of February was the month where we really pushed hard watching him from being able to like rely on full support just to sit up in bed to being able to sit up on his own and assistant. I mean, I watched the machines that they would use to help him to stand, to sit in a chair. It's intense and it's hard and he hates it because it hurts. It's painful. He had lost 70 pounds too by this time. So, I mean, I would feel his arm and there was nothing. Tell me about the pain of therapy. I felt it a lot in my knees and my hip. My right hip was 
always sore. But yeah, they pushed me hard. I mean, I did physical therapy twice a day, every day, on top of occupational therapy and... I don't know if speech therapy had come in there, but... And we would have some great nurses that would be like, okay, let's sit up again. And I would be like, yes. And he's like mad. Mm. I mean, he hated us during this time, but it was all with the best of intentions because we're running out of time, right? Because one of the things on transplant, nothing else can go wrong, right? So you're looking at his kidney levels every day. You're watching his liver enzymes. You're watching his heart Ryan, how does it feel to sit here and have the story of you told by your wife? In other words, you were largely out of it. And so this story obviously involves you, but it's one that is told by others around you. I'm just curious how that feels. You know, when, when I could start remembering things, you know, I did ask questions. And this was just several weeks ago. Even before our kids got here, we were sitting there talking one night and Trinity says, do you remember after transplant, you had to go back into surgery for bleed? I had no clue. I mean, if she wasn't there, I wouldn't know 95% of what happened. And in any other normal circumstance, being rushed into surgery, that would have been a a Mm -hmm. life's memory. Right. But it's just one more dip on the roller coaster. Yeah. I remember February 9th. It was the first day that I had went in there to spend like the day. And so he has restraints on too, because at that time he's trying, sometimes he had tried to get out of bed and, and he wakes up in the afternoon and he is trying to get out of bed. And he's mouthing to me and usually the do- like the nurses were watching and they were like, usually we can't understand, but we could understand because he was so mad and he was telling me like, get somebody in here. It's time to go home from work. I need to go now. So he's completely oblivious to where he's at, what he's doing. And he, we cannot risk him pulling his trach out. He had, he had disconnected the tube multiple times and <laughs> This isn't funny. I look back on it now and I can laugh because he was so mad at me. He took the pillow in his bed and he was working so hard. He was so mad. He was going to throw it at me. Well, I knew he couldn't. He was too weak for that, but he was going to get that pillowcase off. And I let him because I'm like, well, this is great therapy. Like get that anger out, but you are doing some great therapy. And he throws that pillowcase on the floor and he is just like glaring at me, not even knowing that I'm his wife really at that time. He but had, you're thinking anger can be physical therapy. Right, I did. They had kind of changed, not changed his goals, but changed like how far he would need to walk, right? Because at first it was 300 feet. You know, 300 feet doesn't sound that, right. that far yeah. until you like mark out 300 feet and you see the condition that he's in and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, but it might as well be a mile. Right. The week that he was able to be put on the transplant list, he was finally able to walk. So Brian is walking. He's reached this milestone. He's regained some strength, which is going to be critical to getting a lung transplant, a double lung transplant, the first of its kind for COVID in Colorado. When do you learn that a transplant can proceed? 
February 26th, he was officially listed for transplant. Brian, do you remember being listed? Yes. What was your reaction to that news? You'd achieved something big in yeah. physical therapy. You know, you're, you're excited, but yet you're scared at the same time. Tell me about that. Well, you know, you're excited just because you know that there's a chance now of surviving. But you're also scared because it's a big surgery, and you also know that there's a chance of not surviving. Did you think that you were going to miss your original lungs? I don't think that was ever a thought. I think it was a thought more of, if these lungs don't work, you can't put the old ones back. Ooh. Because you, those old lungs were so sick. No do-overs. Exactly. Yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no do-overs. How long were you on the list before you were able to get new lungs? A week. Seven days. Yeah, so exactly a week later, the doctor came in and said... <laughs> We laugh about this story I, yeah, because well, I'm laughing. I'm very the doctor that delivered the news, um, he comes in and he says, well, got your wish. I found a lung for you. And he's like pretty straight faced. And I'm like, well, I hope there's two of them. And he's like, yeah, there is. And he walks out. And I was like, what does this mean? Like, what, like, what do you mean? So that was a Friday you know, you're thinking, oh, it's going to happen, but there's a lot of factors that go into it, right? So at that point, there has to be a doctor that goes and looks at these lungs that makes sure that they're okay, that they're compatible. So at this point, we think we have the size, we've got like the blood type, you know, the age looks fairly good as far as that. And not that the age matters necessarily. But you don't want 90-year-old lungs. Right, right. And so... And where were these lungs? So we don't know. Oh. We just know they were in Colorado. And that's, that's all we know. But you know that your gain is someone's loss. That exactly. was the hardest part. Like, so once he's approved for transplant that whole week, I, I've struggled with these feelings of wishing for lungs. Because who can wish for that? Like, who wishes for somebody else to lose their life? You know, it's not... Ugh. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. And I just hope, I just hope that knowing that they're from Colorado, that maybe they've seen like the TV or they'll hear this story and someday we'll get to know them. We'll get to meet them and they will be able to see like what that did. Trinity Raymond and her husband, Brian, join us this hour. Brian's the first COVID-19 lung transplant recipient in Colorado. He fell ill just after Thanksgiving and received a donor's lungs in March. Coming up, Brian is wheeled into the operating suite. Then his first breaths with new lungs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Tickets for June 30th at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Brian Raymond of Malta, Montana, needs new lungs or COVID-19 will kill him. He's gone from a hospital in Malta to Billings, eventually to CU Anschutz, where he'll become Colorado's first COVID-related lung transplant recipient. His wife, Trinity, is by his side. Their four kids are back home with extended family. For many months, Brian's been on a life-or-death roller coaster. It's now March 6th, surgery day. How long is a lung transplant operation, Brian? Um, I think mine was eight hours. Mm -hmm. They told me eight to 12 hours. And you go in there hoping that the surgery goes as, as well as it can and that he wakes up from surgery. A lot of brain. It was, it was a difficult time. And then when they came to take you back for surgery, I remember looking at Trinity and saying, I love you. And I thought that was the last time I was going to see her. You didn't have high hopes at that point. I did not. I mean, you'd been met with so many obstacles. But, you know, I, I knew I had God on my side. And, you know, it was either his time to call me home or he has a bigger plan for me. What did your prayers sound like? Oh, man. Just please keep him alive. For the longest time, you know, you're praying for him to get better and that's not happening. And then you're praying for him to be listed. Okay. So then you think, well, by golly, I prayed for him to be listed. Now, I, ah, it was just a struggle. It was like, you just don't even know what to do. Um, did you question your faith? Oh, yeah. I did. I questioned a lot. Probably I questioned a lot, but then at the same time, it was the only thing that got me through. So it was that battle of, you know, questioning why is this happening? What's going on? Why aren't you healing him? But it's in the, the other side of it is just accepting that my thought of healing and God's thought of healing for some reason that I, I will never know aren't the same. Your time might not be God's time. It's exactly it. Does that resonate, Brian? Yep. Hmm. Exactly it. I want to believe that you get a lung transplant and then you wake up from the surgery (laughs) and it's a little bit like the Wizard of Oz where it just goes from black and white to technicolor and all of a sudden, Brian, you're breathing easy. Maybe you feel like you could take a hike I wanted to believe that too. <laughs> what is it like when you are first breathing on new lungs? It's not anything like that. I felt like I was struggling all the time, like I couldn't breathe. I know. I remember being on the BiPAP machine, and every night I would tell the guy that there was something wrong with the machine because it was making me breathe way too fast. They're like, no, Brian, it's not. Or that I couldn't breathe. I just felt like I was struggling all the time to catch my breath. On the new lungs. On the new lungs. This is when a lot of that PTSD and for the first time, like really truly seeing anxiety attacks happened. Well, you're thinking, is this working? Right. Are they failing? Right. And at that time, he's still on a ventilator, right? Coming out of surgery, he's still on a ventilator and he's still on ECMO. So they're going to start to take this stuff down slowly. Wean him off. And first they're going to work on the ECMO. And I remember the day it was 
the 11th, I think they were like, okay, the ECMO has been clamped. I mean, it got to the point where I told the nurses, don't tell him when you're going to clamp it because there was so much anxiety in him knowing that that's what kept him alive. I said, don't tell him, please just clamp it, chart it. Don't tell him because he would think he couldn't breathe, but he had to retrain himself. So for almost four months, his muscles haven't had to work to breathe, right? So we've got diaphragm muscles that are completely out of shape. We have this fast, rapid breathing. You have to learn. Basically, it's a time in his life when he had to learn how to breathe. You had to relearn breath, Brian. Yep. And trying to convince him that he could control it was one of the hardest things. I would have them call me in the middle of the night to calm him down because he would get so anxious and we don't want him to have to go on any more of those sedation things, right? We want to keep moving forward. Well, it also occurs to me how interrelated stress and breath are, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so they say, oh, are you feeling stressed? Well, just take a deep breath. Right. And it's so true though. It's so true when we could talk him into, and he got very good at closing his eyes, shutting things out and practicing and taking those smell the roses, blow out the candle breaths because he had to learn it again. Talk to me about that. Smell the roses, blow out the candles. (laughs) It's called purse breathing is what it's called. I've learned that in pulmonary rehab and before that, but it's called purse breathing. So... You breathe through your nose, and then you exhale out of your mouth. Okay. And your exhale needs to be longer than your inhale. Hmm. Um, Will you walk me through one of the exercises? Yeah, so it's just... And I hated it. There was a lot of times that Trudy's like, you're breathing fast, and I'm just like, no, I'm not. And she would get really, really mad, and I would get really, really mad, and it ended up as... Sometimes that she was like, I'm leaving. I'm going home. You're not listening to me. I'm leaving. And that sucked. When did it start to feel like you could breathe in the clear? I think when we started physical therapy again. um, How many weeks after surgery? Like two days after surgery. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they didn't wait long. But being able to sit up and not gasp for air, I mean, I they would have want me to sit in a chair for, you know, first it was two hours, and then I'd want to get back in bed. And then the next day, it might be four hours. Just sitting up straight. Correct. Was the goal. Yeah. And, and he that hated was, it. And it was exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, you keep working up. It was eight hours, then 12 hours, and... Not only that, but you're doing physical therapy on top of that. You know, some of the nurses towards the end, we had a gal from England, and I remember her walking in one day, and my breakfast had got there, and they had slid the table over my bed, and she says, mm we're in the new world now. You don't eat in bed. All your meals are out of bed. I was like, all right. So I'd get up in the chair and I'd go eat. And she was one of my favorite nurses. You know, she, she was so funny, but she was so to the point. Funny is a word I'm glad you mentioned. 
It sounds like there are places, at least in retrospect, where you have been able to find some kind of humor. Did humor get you through? I know prayer did. Mm-hmm. Was there music? Was there a book? Oh, was there yes. oh? There was the custodian. She come in, and she would come in, and she would sing every time that she came in, and she had the most beautiful voice. And it's, I mean, I can still hear her today. And she would come in and she would check on me every day when she was cleaning my room. And I remember her one day, she looked at Trinity and she's like, he's doing so much better. (laughs) But the singing, her singing, and then they have a music therapist that's at the hospital also. And we just really, really enjoyed her. So what would you do? Sing together? She, she would, would sing, sing to us. Yeah. The therapist would. Yeah. yeah. She would bring um, in some instruments in, and she would ask Brian if he had a request, and then she would go and come back the next day with that song. What was your um, request? What was your oh, first I can't request? Even remember. remember? I don't remember either. It I don't was, remember, but she had it was a, voice. a church. It was a church jam. So, Brian, it's been months since you've seen your kids. They've been back in Montana. When were you able to see them again? Just this Memorial Day. Memorial Day. Our son finally got a cell phone. It was <laughs> we held off as long as we could for getting our children <laughs> cell phones, but he texted us nonstop from the time they left Billings. Texting you what? You know, we're almost there. Can't we're wait almost to see there. you. We're almost there. This is where we're at. Sure enough, a few minutes later, here they come around the corner, mm-hmm. and you know the kids rushed out of the vehicle as fast as they could, and you know it was just hugs and tears from everybody, you know, because it had been so long since I'd physically seen them. You can love your children from a distance, but being able to physically, you know, hug them and give them a kiss and you know, say I love you in person is totally different than on FaceTime. How aware do you think they were of how dire this had gotten? The older ones, I, it finally came to the point where they asked me, is he going to die? And, you know, you always want to protect your kids. And how often do we say, oh, no, no, it's going to. And I just couldn't anymore. Mm. I just said, I don't know. I don't know. All we can do now is pray. That's all we can do. But I just also try to emphasize to them, like, we can't control it either, right? Because that's the only comfort I had to give them was that... The only comfort you had to give them was the powerlessness, was the surrender. Yeah, for sure. Did they have a lot of questions about your new lungs? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just the other day, Renzi, our 12-year-old... She called her mom. It was after church one day. And she's like, did dad get a a lung transplant from somebody famous? And Trini's like, well, I don't think so. Why? Well, are you sure you didn't get Zac Efron's lungs? And Trinity goes, sweetheart, Zac Efron's still alive. (laughs) She was like, oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And then she felt so silly for asking. But they just... They didn't really grasp that part. And that'll be a lot of conversations that we'll have, right? Oh, right. About, you know, the importance of organ donation, but also the fact that, and that 
I didn't really go into detail. That's just, there's some conversations you want to have in person with them. If they don't grasp it already, they will know that somebody, unfortunately, had to pass away. And that is so hard to say that somebody had to pass away in order for your daddy to live. I mean, Mm. ugh. What are you doing with your new lungs these days, Brian? I actually jogged for five minutes. It was the first time I've actually jogged since before I was positive for COVID. How did it feel? You know, it it took a lot of wind. It really did. But that was my goal when I got to pulmonary rehab. I told them that I wanted to jog before I left. Do you think you'll ever take your breath for granted, Brian? Oh, it's... I have a whole new outlook on life. It's a new normal now. It's not going to be the same normal that it used to be. You know, where I could go out and do whatever I want. The biggest one that got me is hunting. I'm a huge hunter. I love to hunt. They told me that I could hunt, but I can't skin the animal or I cannot gut the animal. Is that too much exertion? Well, it's it's because of the bacteria. Mm -hmm. Oh. Because your lungs are the first organ. I mean, there's nothing that... to protect the lungs. So you've got to think constantly about your immune system. Exactly. Brian and Trinity Raymond of Malta, Montana, where they were able to return late last week. The first time Brian's been home since December. He was the first COVID-19 lung transplant recipient in Colorado. And tomorrow we'll sit down with his transplant surgeon who expects to do more of these operations because of COVID in the future. With producer Michelle P. Fulcher and audio engineer Pedro Lumbrano, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Mm-hmm.